The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Rick Rule, the president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings Incorporated. Mr. Rule is considered one of the top experts on natural resource securities investing. At Sprott, he leads a highly skilled team of earth science and finance professionals who also enjoy a wide reputation for resource investment management. Rick, welcome. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. We've seen what could be called an overall Trump bump in the market since the election. Is that optimism still sustainable? Do you believe it still exists among the broad investment community? And can the stock market hold or is it fragile as we see a petite crack in it this week? Well, with the caveat that I'm a credit analyst, not an economist, and this is a bit above my pay grade, I'll take the bait and answer the question as best I can. My suspicion is that some of the initiatives that Mr. Trump announced, particularly the deregulation initiatives and the tax cut initiatives, did get the market's attention. I think sobriety is setting in now as a consequence of the fact that it looks like Mr. Trump picked 50 fights as opposed to winning two or three, and the probability of using your political capital to win 50 fights as opposed to the two or three important ones, is beginning to dawn on the market with, of course, the failure of his inability to get his own health care initiative through. With regards to the market, I think the market is actually bigger than Trump overall, and my suspicion is that the Trump bump may have been people searching for a narrative to support a market that may have been going up anyway, buoyed by the reasonably good dividend returns on large stocks relative to savings alternatives like putting money in the bank, and also really pretty good corporate earnings and margins. It needs to be stressed that although the economy is not particularly strong by historical standards, the S&P 500 companies in the United States really as a consequence of 2008 are in extraordinary financial shape with good margins, good market shares. They are globally competitive. And although the government balance sheet is not in shape, corporate balance sheets are in shape. I'm not arguing with you that markets are cheap. I'm just suggesting that there may have been more to the rally that we saw in major markets than merely the Trump effect. If what you say is true, and I have no reason to doubt that, I believe you stated in the past the bust, boom, bear, and bull markets are cyclical. We had a crash in 2008. Statistically, we may be due for another one. But based on what you just said, that may not happen. Well, you know, if you give somebody like me the use of may, I can convince you of almost anything. (laughs) The truth is, I don't know. When I personally look at the collective balance sheet, that is the government balance sheet in Europe, the government balance sheet in Japan, the government balance sheet in the United States, I'm at a loss as to why a crash hasn't occurred already. When I, on the other side of the equation, look at 
the United States society where five or six pimply-faced kids commandeer a garage in Silicon Valley and out pops Facebook or out pops Google. When I look at the margins, when I look at the balance sheet of large companies in the United States, and I think about the cost of capital that they enjoy with subsidized interest rates relative to the return on capital employed, I'm not so sure. The truth is that this is actually a little above my pay grade, and I would encourage your listeners to look at the facts and think for themselves with regards to that issue. Well, we're heading somewhere with this conversation that I think is completely within your realm. The dollar has been resilient to most all assaults, whether planned or spontaneous. Is it bound ultimately to take a hit, a sustainable hit? And if that hypothetical ever happens, what is the fix? Isn't the dollar, in fact, still a safe haven globally when you and I love gold? I think the answer to that is yes and yes. My friend Doug Casey describes the dollar as the prettiest mare at the slaughterhouse. Strong, not so much because of the U.S. balance sheet or even the strength of the U.S. economy, but rather strong relative to its competitors. Japan with historical problems and, as an example, its demographic issues with too many old people relative to young people. Europe with problems on the periphery and a legacy of too much social spending. So the U.S. in the next 12 to 18 months looks strong, not because of its own strength, but relatively strong compared to its competitors. Ultimately, over the 20 or 30 year time frame, all fiat currencies attempt to get to their intrinsic value, which is zero. I love pointing out the fact that 30 years ago, a room at Motel 6 cost $6. That's why they call it Motel 6. Now it's $60. Over time, the deterioration of a fiat currency is inevitable. Okay, well, let's talk about gold and silver as actual currency and a hedge against the potential collapse of fiat currency. When can the original money become real money again, a tradable, exchangeable commodity? And how do you revamp the fiat system in advance of this as a precautionary measure? Well, I think people are trying to do that around the world. One example is BitGold. The other example is one that Sprott is working on with the Flash Crash Boys. And of course, people can augment their savings with gold and silver now. In other words, people can protect themselves against the depreciation in fiat currencies by storing a part of their wealth in gold and silver, which are, of course, simultaneously mediums of exchange and stores of value. The truth is that the probability that a political institution would base its currency on gold seems to me to be extremely remote because what gold and silver tend to do is they tend to limit the fiscal opportunities available to the political class, which doesn't look kindly on any limiting of their power. So my suspicion is that the initiative will have to be a private initiative. As I say, the idea that some country would voluntarily return to a gold-backed currency seems unlikely. However, the sense that increasing numbers of gold-oriented investment products will occur that allow the citizenry to pursue that course of action on their own, that future seems fairly bright to me. 401ks, retirement funds were at risk in 2008. We don't know that they're invulnerable now. They're not. How much of one's liquid assets would you advise shifting over to gold and silver bullion? I think that really depends on the other components of one's portfolio and a bunch of private circumstances. As an example, when a client comes to me and I see most of their portfolio in long-dated bonds, 
instruments that are particularly subject to being ravaged by inflation, I recommend upping the gold and silver allocation merely for insurance functions. By contrast, people whose portfolios are maybe involving intelligently leveraged real estate, which is hard to replace and also provides a good delta between return on capital employed and cost of capital, need to own less gold because they've taken care in other parts of their portfolio. So it's reasonably an individual circumstance. I personally have about 10% of my liquid portfolio in gold and silver, although I personally need to own gold less than other people do because an increase in the gold price would be very good for my underlying business and would be good indeed for the shares of my employer, Sprott Inc., where I'm the second largest shareholder. As you know, the Mines and Money Asia Conference is being held in Hong Kong April 5th through 7th. In that light, have we been seeing a great escape of hard cash in China and other Asian countries into precious metals and North American markets? If so, why? And will it increase if that's the case? I think we've been seeing a reasonable amount of outbound investment by the Chinese in North American business and real estate markets. And of course, the Chinese and other Asian countries have a long-time cultural affinity to gold. It's very difficult for observers either inside or outside of China to understand the market share that gold and silver might have in the investment matrix of Chinese. But certainly physical buying of gold by Chinese individuals has increased in the last eight or nine years as the government of China has made the infrastructure available for dealing gold, you know, available to Chinese people. The government of China has begun to be concerned about their ability to manage their currency and their own economy with the large outbound flows of capital that we've seen in China for the next five years. And the consequence of that is that in terms of Chinese individual investors' impact, as an example, on North American real estate markets or the ability of Chinese companies to make outbound acquisitions of companies on global equities markets, the next five years may be very different than the last five years. It would appear so far that the Chinese government is facilitating and perhaps encouraging the increasing ownership of physical gold and silver among its citizenry. And this encouragement seems to fall on a society that's already culturally predisposed to gold and silver. So my suspicion is that Asian buying generally and Chinese buying in specific will continue to be favorable for physical gold and silver. How much of an effect does China still have on the gold and silver story? And by story, it used to be the story that many of us pervade over 10 years ago, the BRIC story. Are the markets still story-driven or are they just freewheeling? Well, I think in the near term, markets are always story-driven. You'll recall that uh, Ben Graham famously said in the near term that markets are voting machines, and in the long term, they're weighing machines, meaning in the near term, they're driven by the narrative, while in the long term, they're driven by value. And the narrative often is used by people to explain near-term trends. The truth is that what the BRICS represented was change. The world's mouth is and was the United States. It's estimated very recently that 26% of the world's investable assets are in the United States, which means that it is still the largest market in the world. What China is, is the fastest growing market in the world. 
And my own suspicion with regards to gold and silver is very unconventional. My own suspicion is that it will be increasing U.S. buying of gold and silver that will drive the next move in the gold market. If you look all the way back to 1980, it's estimated that precious metals and precious metals-related equities comprised 8% of investable assets in the United States, a big, big number. The median over the last three decades was 1.5%, meaning that precious metals and precious metals equities had about a 1.5% market share of investable assets in the United States. Right now, the comparable number is one-third of 1%. Very, very, very low. My suspicion is that over the next five years, precious metals and precious metals-related assets will return to the three-decade median of 1.5%, which suggests to me that precious metals and precious metals equities demand could grow four- or five-fold in the United States over the next five years in what is still the world's largest investment market with 26% market share of global investable assets. Well, this is fascinating. What you're saying is that the American consumer, which consumes a great deal of expensive things, invests and purchases many different assets, has never really gotten on the gold train. If that ever happens, if it becomes a thing to possess to own here in the United States, then all bets are off. It could go anywhere, correct? Well, certainly gold is a very small part of the investable assets in the planet. And I'm not suggesting that gold will return to the favor enjoyed in 1980 or 1981. I'm only suggesting that gold and gold stocks will get to 1.5% of investable assets. I don't even believe that gold will win the war against the U.S. 10-year treasury or the U.S. dollar. I believe that gold will lose the war less badly. Because gold is such a small asset class relative to other asset classes that American and global investors have to invest in, a small diversion into precious metals and precious metals related assets, particularly away from fixed income securities, will drive precious metals and precious metal stocks a lot higher if it occurs. So really, a 1.5% rate of investment in gold for the American market is still fivefold of what it has been today and in the recent past, correct? Yeah, correct. If I understand it, the current arithmetic says that the market share of precious metals and precious metals related investments is about one third of 1%. So you would be looking at a four or 500% increase in a market that comprises 26% of the investable assets on the planet. How do you feel precious metal stocks are leveraged in comparison to that? I would say well under leveraged. Well, in the very near term, I think that's accurate. The precious metal stocks have suffered a pretty tremendous pullback after greatly out performing the metal last year. So if in the near term, strength in the dollar as a consequence of inbound flows from Europe don't act to suppress in the near term the gold price, I think the precious metals equities are due for a bit of a bounce. The other thing I think that's on the side of the precious metals equities is the fact that the incredibly poor managerial performance that burdened them in the last decade will have a bearing on the way companies act this time through. You may remember that in the last decade, precious metals mining companies, in the face of a commodity that ran from $250 an ounce to $1,900 an ounce, actually delivered less cash flow per share at the end of the bull market than they did at the beginning. This took real management malice. 
The consequence of that is that many mining company senior managers were allowed to pursue other employment opportunities, a long way of saying fired. I think that those mistakes are fresh in the minds of managers and investors now. And my suspicion is that the next 24 months will be remarkably free of management errors, meaning that increases in the gold price in the near term should flow through and benefit shareholders, which should make the equities perform better than expected. Now, in truth, the expectations are so low that it would be very difficult for the equities not to exceed expectation. What kinds of stocks, Rick, do you like right now in that realm? Really across the board. If I was talking to a new investor, I would ask the new investor to either buy the very, very, very highest quality gold stocks, things like Franco Nevada, things like Rand Gold, and then begin to fill in. Or alternatively, for a smaller investor, to simply buy the senior and junior exchange traded ETFs so that you didn't expose yourself to single company risk or liquidity risk. We would, of course, prefer a sprot that investors looked at the sprot senior gold miners index and junior gold miners index. But the truth is you can look across the board. For people who are willing to do more work, and it does take work, and for people who are willing to expose themselves to more risk, of course, the intermediates and the juniors offer much more leverage to the gold price. But that leverage comes at a price. You run the risk of you know, single company implementation failure, which means that you actually have to study the sector and pay attention to your companies. And you run the risk of a mistake happening to a company that you couldn't foresee. So really the answer to that depends on the investor. I guess that management would be the component to watch the most. Time has proven that to be an extremely wise statement, my friend. I apologize in advance for throwing this question at you, although we may have answered it indirectly. What's more likely in the next 12 to 18 months? $1,000 gold or $2,000 gold? Uh, I think somewhere in the middle. It wouldn't surprise me to see gold test $1,000, but if you give me 18 months, I would say gold higher, maybe appreciably higher than we see it now. The market has thrown every possible challenge at gold it could. Confidence is high. Confidence is high in the U.S. dollar. We have been able to raise the interest rate. And that's worth noting, too, by the way. We've had a very small increase in the government-mandated interest rate increase. What, 25 basis points? But the market has raised the interest rate on the U.S. 10-year treasury by 100 basis points. And gold has taken that in stride. The fear about gold was always that in a rise interest rate environment that it would be tough on gold, despite the fact that the best decade gold ever had was the 1970s when the interest rate increased by 450% and the gold went hyperbolic. My suspicion is if you give me 12 to 18 months, the gold price is higher, probably appreciably higher. And I could say the same thing for the better gold stocks, higher, probably appreciably higher. We might be seeing something we always wanted to see. Gold may finally be decoupling from the dollar and even oil. Well, I don't know that gold is decoupling from oil. That's the subject of another very long interview as to A, whether it was ever coupled to oil. With regards to the dollar, here's what I can say. We've had a 35-year bull market in the U.S. 10-year Treasury, the Bellmark instrument. And I'm not trying to say that the Treasury couldn't continue to do well, but after 35 years, I think that bull market is closer to the end than to the beginning. And I believe that gold trades contra to the U.S. 10-year Treasury. If that's true, then I think the gold bull market is closer to the beginning than the end. If you want to tie it to the dollar, that's one thing. I really tie it to the U.S. 10-year Treasury myself, the savings interest. Rick, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I look forward to more conversations in the future. Thank you for joining me on the program. Always 
always my pleasure. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to express my views. I've been speaking with Rick Rule, the president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings Incorporated. Learn more about Sprott Global by visiting their website, SprottGlobal.com. Join me now for a conversation with Steve Roebuck, the president and CEO of Enforcer Gold Corp. Trading under the symbol V-E-I-N, that's Bain, on the TSX Venture Exchange. Enforcer Gold Corp. is engaged in mineral exploration in northern Quebec and holds a significant land position over the underexplored Montalembert Gold in Shear Vein property. Steve, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Ellis. Give us an overview of your company, if you don't mind. The name is Enforcer Gold Corporation, and our ticker symbol is Vein, V-E-I-N. We just did a little bit of a name change. Enforcer Gold was a strong name and very memorable. Vein really reflects the high-grade nature of our gold project. Fantastic. Now, speaking of high grades, I've had a chance to look at some of the material. I've actually seen a couple of rocks that you pulled out of one of the veins. Why don't you share that with our audience? There's a channel sample. Of course, channel sampling is difficult to do. And to find 438 grams gold over one meter was spectacular. So we were very happy to see that type of result. This was topped by another sample on that same vein structure. I went about 20 meters, 75 feet to the north. I spotted a little bit of visible gold and I brought my hammer and my chisel to work. Started going after what I thought might be an interesting piece. It turned out to be a little bit more than that. It's actually a real trophy piece. We haven't been able to assay it because it's so spectacular, almost museum quality. So yeah, it is a high-grade gold project at this point. You were sitting on the sidelines waiting for a project like this before you came on board. That's correct. A project like this comes once in a career, and I think that karma found me in many ways, and I've been one of these guys that always try to do it right, be a true person. In finding this project was a bit of good luck. My background is gold mining, gold exploration. I've worked for BHP Billiton. I've worked for Scorpio Gold Corporation, Placer Dome, or Resources, a number of high-profile companies. So my background as a geologist has suited me well, mining, exploration, and most recently for the last 10 years involved in the junior sector. So finding a project like this is, it just suits my skill sets and what I want to do, what I want to accomplish in the years ahead. Now, tell us what the next step is. I have held the rocks in my hand. They're quite impressive. And really, when you see Bonanza grades on paper, you hear about it, it's almost too good to be true. And then you hold the rocks in your hand, you get excited about it. I'm excited about it because I held the rocks in my hand. So what's the next step? Begin the exploration. We took the project on in October of 2016. We released those channel samples, which were fantastic numbers. Now it's time to get to work and it really starts in the next two weeks. We're going to be doing airborne mag survey. So it's a large project. It's 15 kilometers strike length by five kilometers, 7,500 hectares in size or about 18,000 square acres. So it's a big project. So we're going to be flying an airborne mag survey and that's going to give us a lot of information in terms of the geology and more importantly the structure that controls the mineralization. So it begins in the next two weeks. We're really looking forward to getting that going and that's going to generate a number of targets for us uh, above and beyond what we already know to exist on the property site. Being such a big project I think we've got a target rich environment so we'll see that. That's the next step for us. How are you funded for that exploration if you don't mind me asking? That rock that uh, you saw I mean that did a lot of talking for me. When you have a museum specimen like that we were able to raise four million dollars. If you remember the night that Mr. Trump was elected gold was going up and I went to bed thinking oh this is going to be this is going to be easy. Well I woke up the next morning and gold had fallen off the cliff and so we had to put our shoulders to the stone and over the next six weeks up until December the 21st we were out bringing old Rocky for the road show showing it to people and people really just got behind it and got excited. So we raised four million dollars 2.2 in flow through and 1.8 in in hard dollars. 
Talk about the share structure. What does that look like? It's excellent. The company only has 40 million shares outstanding in basic right now. We've got 11.8 million warrants at 30 cents, 1.8 million options at 20 cents. So that gives us fully diluted 53 million. If you're looking at what our market cap is, we trade at roughly about 20 cents. So we're looking at about an $8 million market cap, half of that, which is actually cash in hand right now. Tell us about the history of the project. The project was first prospected in the late 1940s by a company called N.A. Timmons, and they ended up doing a drill campaign in 1950. They drilled 30 holes, about 10,000 feet. What ended up happening is that from that program, the engineer who did the work, he only sampled 24 out of the 30 holes. And of the six holes that he sampled, he only took 10 samples. It's really a head-scratcher as to why so much work was done and so little information was garnered from it. I was reading one of his logs, drill hole 16, in fact. It was five and a half meters of mineralized material, and he didn't take one sample in it. So I'm not too sure what exactly was going on at that time, but that gives me an opportunity. The quality of the logs is there, and they're good, and I'm using them for interpretation of where the veins are because I do know where the collars are. So I've been able to ascertain what I see at surface on the veins and extrapolate down using his drill log. So I'm getting a very good understanding of what the actual project looks like and what he saw in 1950. Based on that, I said, okay, that's some good information. Let's now fast forward. That's 67 years ago, by the way. So that drill core doesn't exist. There's no real information I can fall back on at that point in time. Fast forward now to 1973. A company called Roshlam Mines got involved in the project. And as opposed to drilling it, they made the decision, and I think it was a good decision, to do a bulk sample. So that means going straight up the vein. They actually came up with excellent information. There's a, a report that's behind that. Although it's, again, old and I can't really rely upon it, it does indicate that, once again, there is high-grade material. So putting out the disclaimer that this is non-43101 compliant, select grabs from that bulk sample, roughly, I guess, about 60 or 70 of them, 405 feet of strike length, average 0.93 ounces per ton. It's a shocker. I mean, that's just like, wow. Is That's the last time this project was looked at until 2015. The project evolved over time through the 70s, more into the 80s, into the 90s, as a base metal project. Work was done, but they were looking for copper, they were looking for nickel. Work was done. And I actually have some of those drill logs, and in one case, four kilometers to the north of where we are currently actively going to be looking this year. This one drill hole intersected 20 meters of hydrothermal breccia. Maybe your readers don't understand the significance of that, but it is very significant. Noted within that is visible gold. This is four kilometers away to the north. I think that opens up a brand new target for exploration in 2017. Somewhere between the last kick at the can was in 2002. This was the commodity of the day. If you remember, it was diamond exploration. This project was a diamond project. After that, it basically fell off the map. We've been told that the project was swept up in a consolidation by a major Canadian gold mining company. The idea is that they did not know what they actually had. Those claims then came, they reverted back to the crown when no work was done because that's just what happens. The credits run out. They went back to the crown and it was staked in 2015 and the project was brought to my attention in 2016. The company that was involved in the the staking of 2015 is called Globex Mining. They are a very well-known and respected project generator. The principal Jack Stock approached the company. They said, I've got a good project. Are you guys interested? And that's when he showed me his sample. That was the 
eye-popper and that got my attention and, and brought me up to the project for my site inspection. So there's kind of the project history. I think right now, Alice, that I've got a blank sheet. I've got a huge project that's got incredible potential on gold and base metals, but specifically for us on gold at this point in time, there's no work actually that I can rely upon for 43101 purposes, but it's given me a great indication of the potential of the project. And you've seen the samples yourself and they are, you know, without a doubt, eye poppers. And it certainly caught the attention of the majors in the area. There are a number of major companies and here at the PDAC, people coming by the booth and stopping and seeing the rock and the expletives coming out of their mouths are just like uh, shocking. But that includes some of the majors. Names that every one of your listeners are familiar with are coming in and they're saying, would it be possible to do a site visit during the summer? And I'm saying, of course, bring your checkbook. Where do you think you're headed going into the summer, Steve? The summer exploration program. I've already mentioned the geophysics. That's going to really lay the the foundation. By mid-May, the snow will have lifted. The ground would have dried off somewhat. We're going to get back in there. We're going to continue to strip the veins. This is all exposed at surface. We are not drilling two, three hundred, four hundred meters to try to find this. This is at surface material. Clearly unique. I'm going to be coming in probably in June to July with a drill rig. I'm going to be drilling this with large diameter holes. This is what you need to do when you've got nuggety gold like this. You need as large a sample size as you can. How big is that sample size? Typically about 90 millimeters across, maybe five and a half, six inches diameter. And if you've seen a typical drill core, it maybe it's usually about two inches in diameter. So this is really significantly larger. And what you're trying to do there is to capture as much material as you can for a sample. And another important thing to talk about is what sampling technique that we're going to use. Previous operators have used just fire assay techniques, and that's good and that is an industry standard. But when you've got nuggety gold and you've got this coarseness, the better technique is to use metallic sieve. It costs a little bit more, but you absolutely get a better result. I'm taking a look at all the work that the previous operators have done, seeing what their mistakes have been and how I can improve and how Forcer Gold can really make a go of this project and really bring it home for our shareholders. We've got the money in the bank already. We've got a great project in hand. I'm working diligently with our First Nation neighbors. That is going extremely well. All these things combined, three strong legs gives me a a platform to build from. I'm in a really good position. I'm super happy that gods have chosen me to head up this company in 2017. Looks like the market's turned around. We're set to go. When are we going to see the kind of results that will go into a 43-101? Everything that you've said sounds amazing. I've seen the rock. Stocks at 20 cents without a compliant resource. When are we going to see that? You mentioned 43-101 and Interestingly, there's an initial, it's called your, your Maiden 4301. And really what it is, is just a, a review of historical work. And this will give your listeners you know, the ability to go on to CDAR and check on Enforcer Gold and download that file themselves and do their own due diligence and see what work has been done. And I always encourage people to make sure that they do that. So that's going to be going on to CDAR within the next few weeks. That is complete. Now, to answer your question as where we're going with this, that would be at the end of the season one drill campaign in which I've got all the surface results from more channel sampling, drilling, RC drilling, large diameter drilling, all this material will come together and that gives us our first pass resource possibly. I'm not planning a resource right now. It's just almost just too far out there. Talk to me again in three to six months and I'll give your listeners an update and I'll tell you guys how the program's going and do I have enough information that I can pull together a resource or if I'm really doing well could it be a reserve i don't know it'll be small to be 
begin with because this is just the beginning of this journey. In years to go, we can update and we'll get something more significant. And, but right now, I think that we've got a 43 coming out. The update will be coming out at the end of the drill campaign. I've been visiting with Steve Roebuck, the president and CEO of Enforcer Gold Corp trading as V-E-I-N on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation now with Nicholas Kakos, the president and CEO of Blue Sky Uranium, a Grosso Group company. Blue Sky Uranium trades on the TSX Venture Exchange as BSK and in the U.S. as BKUCF. The company is one of Argentina's best positioned uranium exploration companies with more than 3,500 square kilometers of tenements. Argentina is the largest generator of electricity from nuclear energy in South America. The country is working to further expand their nuclear energy sector with additional power plants, but lacks a ready internal supply of uranium. Argentina's desire for security of supply could provide a guaranteed first customer for a domestic supplier. Nico, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ellis. Great to be here. If you don't mind, give us an overview of the company. Blue Sky Uranium Corp is a company that has been around for a few years working on a discovery in Argentina of a brand new uranium district. This is the first of its kind in Argentina and not something unheard of in the Southern Hemisphere. So we're very excited to be uh, going forward on this. We in the Northern Hemisphere don't necessarily know Argentina as a big consumer of nuclear energy, but they're one of the leaders in the Southern Hemisphere. Tell us about it. Absolutely, they are. In the 70s, Argentina was a nuclear power, in fact, but they've got a bustling nuclear energy uh, program. They have three nuclear plants right now operational in Argentina. They've got one under production, two of them they're planning, and they also build and export their own power plants. How is Blue Sky Uranium potentially positioned to participate in the energy grid in Argentina? Well, Argentina imports all their uranium right now that they use. And under the Paris Accord, where they're committed to reducing their CO2 emissions by 2030, their commitment to generating more energy through nuclear power is increasing dramatically. But that also projects that they would have to import even more uranium. And what we have here at Blue Sky, we have a new district that has the potential to not just satisfy Argentina's domestic needs and be the potentially the first domestic supplier of uranium to Argentina, but also to be an exporter. So essentially, Argentina stands alone with regard to whatever happens to the uranium consumption story around the world because they have their own needs. They're not reliant on global economics, more or less. That's absolutely correct. Although from our own projections, global economics look very promising as well. Let's get into the history of the company. Blue Sky Uranium has been around now for just over a decade, and we've been working on this district for some time now. The management team behind Blue Sky Uranium is the Grosso Group Management. And Grosso Group has exceptional expertise in Argentina as a group, and I'm one of its founding members. We've been involved in Argentina when they first opened and liberalized mining for international investment back in 1993. Argentina at that time was a clean slate. It had no private investment whatsoever. So the Grosso Group went on and has had a number of successes. We've got three major discoveries in Argentina over the last 24 years. This Amarillo Grande project is a project that we picked up about 11 years ago in southern Argentina and Rio Negro. Rio Negro is a province that has an active nuclear industry where they do research and manufacture research reactors. And we have a lot of support for our efforts and what we're doing there. I understand that the resource is near surface. 
Yes, it's a surficial type of mineralization, and it's spread over a very large region, over 140 kilometers long trend. It's got good grades, and it also occurs not in hard rock, but in a gravel-like unconsolidated environment. And what that means for us is that once we can identify size of a resource here, it's very low cost to produce and could potentially be very economic. Hypothetically, once you identify the resource, how soon could you potentially go into production? What is your plan for the company going forward? Well, what we're doing right now is we've got a 10,000 meter drill program underway. The purpose of this program is to come up with a resource calculation so we can see how much uranium we have there. And then we expect that report to come out sometime in the fall or later on this year. And then depending on the size of that, as soon as next year, we could be getting into putting together a pre-feasibility study. Would you be a producer? We could be a producer, yes. We would be looking to partner up either with a private company or with the government. I've tracked the Grosso Group for about 20 years now, and I'd like to say that Blue Sky Uranium might be one of the more exciting companies in their portfolio now. Right now with the Grosser Group, this is something that's very exciting. Uranium is a very exciting metal because of the opportunity that we have in Argentina and internationally. It looks that the demand for uranium is set to increase. This project looks very attractive considering some of the other resource stocks right now with a share price of near 35 cents and your strong relationship with the Argentine government and Arriva. Yes, I mean the project in the past has had the attraction of Arriva, which is the world's largest uranium company. A few years ago, they had to cut back and leave because of budgetary cuts that they had from their Paris office, but it's a project that definitely is attracting international attention. How are you capitalized moving forward for further exploration and development? We've got about $3.5 million in the Treasury right now, so we are fully funded to carry out our exploration objectives between now and the end of the year. We look forward to get some more results out and to project even future. We'd love to be the first domestic supplier of uranium to Argentina, as that would really make us a pioneer and yet another metal in Argentina. Let's review the share structure. Right now, we have about 76 million shares outstanding and are fully funded for our program in Argentina. Nico, it's been a pleasure visiting with you today. Thanks for joining me on the program. Thanks for the opportunity, Ellis. I've been speaking with Nicholas Kakos, the president and CEO of Blue Sky Uranium, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as BSK and in the U.S. as BKUCF. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Find an assortment of potential investment opportunities. Start by visiting our website, ellismartreport.com. Join me for a conversation with George Sanders, president of Goldcliff Resource Corporation, trading as GCFFF in the U.S. and GCN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Goldcliff is a mine development company focused on near-term cash flow by applying the phased production business model to precious metals assets. The company is currently funding engineering and permitting activity on the Pine Grove, Nevada Gold Project through a 40% joint venture interest. Mr. Sanders was was part of the team that successfully brought the Silvercrest Mine Santa Elena project to fruition as a mine, selling it off to First Majestic Silver. George, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ellis. Pleasure. If you don't mind, give us an overview of the company, please. Goldcliff is practicing the phased production business model, which is old-fashioned bootstrapping of precious metals assets. We 
search out assets that we think can be turned into operating mines in a fairly short order. Last summer, we acquired an interest in the Pine Grove project in the Walker Lane in Nevada. This is a project that has previously had a substantial amount of drilling done on it and metallurgical testing, and it is ready to be advanced to the permitting and engineering stage with a view to bringing the thing into production as a small open pit heap leach operation. We've been actively advancing that project since last August. I understand that you just returned from the Pine Grove project in Nevada. What's new on site? Well, it was mostly an administrative visit, but importantly, one of the things that we did was have an interview and follow-up conversation with a permitting consultant. The fellow is a former senior permitting bureaucrat with the federal agencies and has been operating now in private practice for a number of years. And we discussed with him uh, possible involvement with the Pine Grove Project to assist us both in permitting ongoing drilling operations operations, but more importantly, to guide us through the submission of the plan of operations to permit an open pit heap leach mine. So that was a very encouraging thing. But what really excited me was my first trip underground at Pine Grove. We were able to access what we call the Sugarloaf Adit. This is the only adit that has been cleared and is available for access. And some really important things jumped out at us from that. And we're pretty excited about that. The structures that exist underground, in your opinion, wouldn't require that much restructuring necessarily. And what jumped out at me particularly was that these openings are at least 120 years old. Once we entered it, three immediate things were evident. One is there was no timber or rock bolting. So the ground is very competent and there was very little what we call loose, which is rocks and other debris that have fallen from the walls or the ceiling of the drift. There was very little loose on the ground. The second thing was that the entire way in was dry. So obviously, now we were above the water table, but nevertheless, there was no running water in there. And the third thing was, even though we were in over 400 feet or well over 100 meters, the air was very fresh. And that tells us that whatever openings we were in are somehow connecting to other openings that are somehow connecting or daylighting, which means there's ventilation underground. So those three things were very interesting just from a ground condition point of view, and it tells us that if we're able to clear up some of the debris in front of some of the other portals, we may be able to get into quite a few of the underground openings. We don't know that yet, but that will be very instructive from a geologic point of view. What was really interesting is that we do know the major structural orientation of the mineralization at Pine Grove. And these are these shallow dipping, repeated zones. They dip to the north-northeast at about 30 degrees. We see that plotted up with our drill holes. We see it geologically. We see it where the good grade mineralization occurs. We also see it in the old maps. That's the orientation of the stopes. And sure enough, when we get into the sugar loaf and we see the stope, that's definitely the direction that the old timers were mining in. What was surprising 
however, that you don't really see from the drill core or from the rotary drill chips is the secondary fracture pattern, and it was in every direction. And what we think is going on is that one or another of these secondary fracture patterns where it intersects with the primary structures along that plane of intersection is where the zones blew out. And when we were underground is the void because that was the high grade that the old timers took. We know from sampling that the fractured material that's left behind certainly carries grade that's attractive from modern day open pit bulk tonnage kind of scenario. So grades between a half a gram and three or four gram. And of course, the old timers were taking out multiple ounces. What was also evident in those old stopes or mined out areas is that clearly the, you know, guys in the 1880s and 1890s were mining by hand. There was no mechanized mining in those days. And you can clearly see evidence of that where they were on some high grade and they were following the small twists and turns. So in the stope or the mined out area, you do see some little pillars and areas where they've moved around and you can see the openings either widening out or in some cases thinning out depending on the structure that hosted the high grade. But it's also evident that those uh, old timers were pretty efficient in following the good grade because they certainly got all of that. I mentioned earlier about how the air was fresh and how dry it was that far underground. Interestingly, in the stope, there were a couple of old wooden chutes. And of course, the chutes were used for the broken rock was contained in those. And then they would bring a rail car in and unload the chute and the ore would be then transected out to the portal and onto the mill. The timber from which those old chutes were constructed looked as if it had just been purchased in a lumber yard in Yarrington or Carson City like a week ago. 120-year-old timber looked brand new because of how dry it was inside. Tell us about the share structure of the company. We restructured the company about a year ago and financed it. So currently we have 19 million shares issued, which is a low issued capital. Stock trades around 19, 20 cents Canadian. So we're looking at a market cap of under three and a half million Canadian. Of that 19 million, I'm personally the largest shareholder. Other members of the board and the estate of the former founder, some of my family and friends and a couple of business associates, there's a group of about five or six of us and we control over 50% of the 19 million shares issued. So it's a limited float. It's an attractive market capitalization. We have some comparable market capitalizations in the market today. People who are a little more advanced down the road in terms of constructing their mines. So a target for our investors and shareholders is when we can advance this to the stage that we're putting project financing together, the comparable market caps today are between 50 and $60 million. 
for companies building similar size projects literally as we speak. And then when those projects achieve startup and first production, they tend to get a re-rating to around 100 million Canadian market capitalization. We feel that if we can continue to uh, advance Pine Grove and we continue to do what we're trying to do, that given our current issued capital and our current market capitalization, there's room for the issuance of additional shares to finance the additional work and still get us to the point where there would be a really nice lift for our current investors. So we think our corporate structure, the foundation of the company for one of these smaller assets like Pine Grove is really well positioned to offer our investors and our shareholders a significant return. George, it's always good to chat with you. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Always a pleasure, Ellis. Thank you. I've been speaking with George Sanders, president of Gold Cliff Resource Corporation, trading as GCFFF in the U.S. and GCN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, and go to goldcliff.com for more information on the company. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Patrick Highsmith, the CEO of Pure Energy Minerals. Pure Energy. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol PE.B and in the U.S. as PEMIF. Pure Energy Minerals is an emerging leader in the development of innovative, resource-efficient mineral exploration and project development, notably with lithium. The company is focused on its 9,500-acre flagship lithium brine project located in Clayton Valley, Nevada. Lithium is used in a wide assortment of mobile devices, hybrid electric vehicles, and power storage. Pure Energy Minerals announced last year that the company had entered into an agreement with Tesla Motors for the potential supply of lithium hydroxide that they intend on producing from Clayton Valley, not far from the Tesla Gigafactory. Patrick, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ellis. It's good to be here. If you wouldn't mind, please give our audience a brief overview of the company. Sure. Pure Energy Minerals is one of the more advanced explorers and developers of lithium resources in North America. We have our flagship Clayton Valley South project, which has sizable inferred resource of lithium and brines, and it adjoins North America's only lithium producer, the venerable Silver Peak Mine in Nevada. And we've just added an exciting new exploration project in the center of the lithium triangle in South America. America, the Terracotta Project in northern Argentina. You've had a successful lithium brine pumping test, which is really crucial moving forward in Clayton Valley, Nevada. You know, Ellis, 2017 is a year of shifting gears for us at Pure Energy a little bit. Our activities at Clayton Valley will be more focused on development and engineering, for instance, as opposed to exploration this year. And the pumping tests that we conduct on the Clayton Valley South Project are, in fact, they're sort of like little test mines, if you will. So we've just completed pumping our CV7 and CV8 wells in recent days and weeks. And when we do that, we pump those wells fairly aggressively to stress that aquifer, understand the hydrological properties, how it's going to yield brine, at what rate, what the effects are, drawing down the water levels in the aquifer. And these are important tests that have to be done as we estimate the future performance of production wells that might be built. If we're successful there as we work through our preliminary economic assessment coming up and, of course, our feasibility study we hope to follow. And all that, of course, lays an important foundation for what another lithium brine mine in Clayton Valley, Nevada, just might look like. Let's talk about about team building. 
modeling, which is shifting for 2017, and what you see going forward. Realizing that we've got these development activities in Clayton Valley, with which we'll have to coordinate a number of contractors and additional test work and engineering studies, and at the same time, launch an exploration program on our new terracotta project. We are making some shifts in the team, and we brought new vice president on board. Walter Weinig has joined us, and Walter has almost 30 years experience. He is a hydrogeologist by training, and he has a long track record in that, but he's also a certified professional project manager. And that's one of those guys, you know the type, Ellis. They have Gantt charts and timelines and to-do lists. And frankly, we need that sort of organization and focus on deliverables. And we're really happy that Walter has joined the team. He's really hit the ground running. He and I work very closely together. And he's helping us complete our plans for delivering our preliminary economic assessment in just a few weeks now. And also, of course, putting the budget and work plan together for the first steps on the Terracotta project, which are already underway. So great to have the team shifting a little bit to look more like a development company and not so much focus on exploration, certainly in Nevada. How are you managing two projects in different parts of the world like this? A lot of people say that a junior company can't run two projects in different parts of the world, Ellis. And in my experience, that's not true. You've got to play to the strengths of your team. I, of course, worked in Argentina, the same province in Argentina, the Salta province, before when I was the CEO of Lithium One between 2009 and 2012. So to some degree, going back to Argentina, we see some of the same team members emerge and want to get together and work together again. Also in Nevada, we've got well-established infrastructure, and the team has been working together there for a while now. The key to this is local expertise and local management. And when you're working in South America, you're going to have lead Argentine scientists and contractors. And in Nevada, we got the team we've been working with, Matt Vital, our hydrogeologist and project manager in the field, now reporting to Walter. And I find that the organization's working sort of seamlessly, actually, reporting up to Walter. And you keep these teams small in a junior company, to be sure, but you rely on contractors who are focused, not only in the geography in which you're working, but the stage of the project, the commodity type, of course, in this case, lithium. And so far, we've been very pleased with our ability to keep the overhead low and outsource to contractors where necessary. And then management flows up to a project manager, previously, of course, Andy Robinson, who worked with us for a couple of years, and now, in this case, Walter, as we shift gears and go forward. So far, the team's really pulling together and I think drawing on strengths and familiarity and guys who've worked together before is also a big help. Tell us, if you wouldn't mind, why your company could be the only serious exploration and development company in the Clayton Valley. Well, our focus at Pure Energy has been doing real work. And right from the beginning, we looked to innovate a little bit. Even before I joined the company, Robert and his team realized that to go forward in Clayton Valley, we needed to be thinking about a new technology for producing lithium, more sustainable, more efficient. And so we immediately went down a path that set us apart there. And then we built a team again to address the technical challenges of a new technology and, of course, operating in Nevada and familiarity there. I like to think that you put a strong technical team in the field and then you have the management sitting over the top of them that realizes what the important milestones are and drives for those milestones. It's true that uh, not every one of these lithium projects is going to turn into a mine. So you want to look at a management team that's focused on the major milestones, has been there before, and is executing with real work. You know, Every hole we drill, every sample we take, every geophysical survey we do, we're learning a lot. And I'm looking forward in 2017 
to building the sort of basin models that will allow us to understand Clayton Valley. And it's complicated geology out there, but we'll be the best at understanding Clayton Valley going forward. And I think that gives us an advantage, not just in Clayton Valley, but where we do continuing lithium exploration in other jurisdictions, even in Argentina. There's a lot of similarities there. So technical team focused on the milestones, doing real work and keeping the overhead disciplined and focused. How close are you to potentially fulfilling an offtake agreement with Tesla Motors down the road? We still, in the lithium industry, are faced with, you know, sort of different takes on supply and demand fundamentals. Some people, of course, are speaking about a supply glut. I think that's very unlikely because I think that only a small minority of projects will actually go forward. So I don't think we have a threat of a supply glut. We see strong supply-demand fundamentals, strong price projections, and we'll be reporting on some of those, by the way in our upcoming PEA. We'll have a professional market survey report there that will deliver our comments and outlook on pricing. So that's important. We're still, though, talking about a commodity that does not trade on any commodities exchange. There's no spot price for it. And so a relationship with customers is critical. We continue our dialogue on a regular basis with Tesla. It's very often very technical and has been very helpful to us. And of course, we reach out and we meet other potential buyers of lithium and off-takers. So we're constantly building those relationships and each day we advance the projects in Clayton Valley and Terracotta now in Argentina. We're taking another step closer to advancing the projects closer and closer to production. So we believe that as we work through the preliminary economic assessment due out in a few weeks, that will give everybody a view of the potential scale of development of that project that will accelerate the discussions with potential off-takers. So that's our objective, Ellis, is to put those parameters out there, the scale of the project, the likely capital cost to build it, operating expenses to produce lithium, and that will facilitate those discussions and make them be able to advance a lot more focused on the objective. Typically, when you're at this stage of a project, moving from PEA to feasibility in the mining industry, we can expect production to go ahead quite rapidly from there, the two to four year time range in most cases when you're in a jurisdiction that's seasoned in permitting and things like that. So we think the dawn of a new lithium mine in North America isn't very far away, and we just have to keep attacking these milestone and delivering uh, at the project level. I've been speaking with Patrick Highsmith, CEO of Pure Energy Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as PE.V and in the U.S. as PEMIF. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.